Well, happy Thanksgiving weekend to all of you here on the main campus at New Hope Church. And for those of you who are joining us uh, from far and wide online as part of our online community, welcome to New Hope Church here in the Minneapolis area. I'm so excited to be with you guys today. And I trust your weekend has been as uh, meaningful and restful even as uh, mine and Christus has been. Uh, my name is Matthew, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, truly, it's an honor to connect with you. Hey, you know what? This past week, we had our Thanksgiving Eve gathering. It was fabulous. For those of you who had a chance to participate, wow, what a great evening of wonderful witness to God's faithfulness in our church family. Uh, we heard stories of, of healing and hope and joy, and the way God just carries us when life is hard, and the way He delights and rejoices to uh, bless us with many rich and good things. And uh, what a fabulous evening. Uh, if by chance you want to be encouraged by that, then uh, it's available uh, on our website. I'd encourage you to go back and just sit and soak in the testimonies of God's goodness. You know, something else that stood out to me about that night was how many folks came to the microphones and shared uh, much gratitude about the various uh, ministries within our church family and uh, the ways in which the men and women who are part of those ministries not only are finding fulfillment and serving in those places, but they are making eternal differences in the lives of so many people. And so uh, we heard folks talk about our young adult ministry, and, and, and that was great. And, and then our, our prayer ministry and the various pieces of that, as well as life groups and our children's ministry and the volunteers that are part of that, those who teach and lead and uh, care for our children, uh, our Latino ministry, and so forth. We heard about all of this uh, and many more things uh, on Wednesday night. And it reminded me that if by chance uh, you don't quite know uh, what your place could be here with the New Hope Church. Boy, we have a spot for you. There are wonderful places to settle in and grow and serve and learn and love well. And uh, I just want to encourage you to uh, jump in and let us uh, walk with you. Uh, let us walk together uh, as we pursue Jesus and make him famous far and wide. Also, I just want to know, or want you to know, I know that uh, on a Sunday like today, right after Thanksgiving, we've got uh, a handful of guests that are here. Perhaps you're new here. And welcome. I'm so thankful uh, to be with you today as we worship our Lord Jesus. Now, I have a uh, confession I need to make. I need to fess up on something. Uh, and it is this. I spend much more time than I ever want anybody to know uh, trying to negotiate with Jesus. All right, trying to negotiate with him. Well, now, Lord, if I will behave a certain way, if I will think a certain way, if I will believe a certain way, then you're going to do this for me, right? Anybody ever think about God that way? It's what I call, it's what I call a spiritual consumerism or quid pro quo Christianity. I'm going to do something for you, God, and here's the deal. I'm expecting you to pull your weight and do something for me. Now, this is, this is by no means a problem for just simply today. Truly, it is a pattern that followers of Jesus, followers of God, have been wrestling with for millennia. It goes back to the most ancient days. But it is a problem. 
And it's a problem that cuts along both lines, if you will, of our community. And by that I mean it's a problem for those of us who are in positions of shepherding or pastoring, and it's a problem for those of us who are sheep. We are just the people of God, all right? So you might be in the pew or you might be on the platform. Either case finds that we, if we're not careful, may be prone to negotiating with Jesus. Jesus, if I do this, if I do that, if I think this way, if I live like that, I'm expecting you to come through. Well, as I said, this is not new. This is ancient. Indeed, indeed, we see this right there in the rebellion in Genesis chapter 3. We see it from the very beginning of the problems of time and space. In that particular part of history, we understand that the devil comes along and he tempts Adam and Eve, he teases them into taking hold of the so-called forbidden fruit. And they do do this, in fact, and, and it is their way of raising their fists against God and declaring their independence from God. But what motivated them, please hear me, what motivated them was that in, at the end of the day, they wanted to be like God. They wanted to be like him. And they had been made to believe that maybe God was holding back. And if they could just have that fruit, they could have what he was holding back. That which he had proscribed for them was not enough for them. And they didn't like that. They wanted more. There's a story in the Old Testament of a man named Esau. He was the grandson of the great patriarch Abraham. And he also was a man that wasn't content with what God had given. He wanted more. God had allowed for Esau to have these rich covenantal blessings. But Esau didn't find that to be suitable enough. His, now understand here, his physical appetite drove him to want more than just what God would provide. And so it is, so it is when uh, he found himself practically starving, he negotiated with his brother, you can have my covenantal blessings, my birthright, my inheritance, if you'll just give me that bowl of soup right there. And by taking that, he forfeited what God had given him by overreaching and trying to get more than what God provided and proscribed, he ended up losing all of it. We fast forward through uh, the history and we come to the people of Israel and on a certain day they approached the great prophet Samuel. Now understand God had provided leaders for the people of Israel for, for centuries great judges and prophetic and priestly leaders. Samuel being one of them, God had taken care of the people, but it wasn't enough. So now they come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, we want a king so we may be what? Like the other nations. You see, they weren't content with what God had proscribed. They wanted more than what he had offered them. 
Their attitude was, God's holding back on us. We want more. We want to be like those people. And even in Jesus' day, during the days when our Lord Jesus walked the dusty trails of Galilee and Judea, two of his companions, his friends, his disciples, James and John, two very close friends, by the way, they approached Jesus and they pleaded with Jesus and they said to him, yo, we want to be seated in the places of power on either side of you in your kingdom. Now understand, this really made angry the rest of the disciples, but their anger wasn't because of some righteous indignation on behalf of Jesus. Their anger, and hear me, was that by James and John reaching for these seats of power, it might mean that they get left out. In other words, they might lose. And therein is the crux to the problem that I have sometimes, and some of you listening have at times. We negotiate with Jesus because we deep down in the most hidden places of our being are concerned, are worried that we're going to lose with him. That he's not going to pull through. That he maybe is good, but maybe not good enough. That he is holding back. That he's going to be the winner and we're going to be the loser. And we can't tolerate that. But it sure drives a whole lot of how we live our lives as, as spiritually minded people. Now, this is a problem. And I do believe it is a pattern within churches among the people of God. It's far more pervasive than we wish to admit. You see, we are, those of us who, who claim our allegiances to God and to his kingdom and his values, we are really worried that he might be holding back on us. And so, therefore, we're motivated to scramble to make our lives work so that we can ensure the best possible prosperity and position and power in our lives. Unless we wonder with whether this is really true, we, we need to just step back and look at the landscape of our current environment. And what we see is uh, several things. For example, we see that scrambling for prosperity and position and power because we're afraid we're going to be losers and that God is holding back, it may be that which subtly or perhaps not so subtly drives us to conflate political ideology with our evangelicalism. And so we make an idol out of our politics because we're just so worried that at the end of the day, we're going to lose. And we conflate these things, the effect of which is 
that the very rich theological word evangelical, which comes from the ancient Greek uh, gospel, New Testament language, uh, the Greek word is euangelion, which literally means good news or the gospel. In the eyes of most of the watching public today, that word no longer is a rich theological term. It's merely a voting block. And that is because we are subtly negotiating with Jesus. Because we're afraid he's holding back. And so we've got to scramble and find our own way toward prosperity and position and power. Now, that's one evidence, I think, of this. A second evidence is the so-called prosperity gospel. If we build it, they will come. If it is shiny and beautiful and glitzy, then obviously God is blessing us. And if it's not shiny and beautiful and glitzy, God is withholding his blessing. This is the prosperity gospel. And yet we so easily fall into this because if it doesn't look shiny and glitzy and beautiful, we're convinced we've lost. God's holding back on us. As if that's not enough, another way these things are manifested is in how we see the people around us. And so this pursuit of power and prosperity and position, it really forces us too easily to see people that aren't like us as the so-called other that we need to stiff arm, lest they encroach upon our territory and take what is ours, and guess what? We then are losers. So much of the spiritual well-being of even conscientious and earnest Christians is this very subtle, though sometimes not so subtle, deep down negotiating with Jesus so that we don't lose. We're terrified of losing. Now, this isn't anything new, as I said. It goes back millennia, and, and it was certainly, I think, one of the dynamics in Malachi's day. And so God calls it out. Why? Because God loves you. He loves his people, and he wants the best for his people. He wants his people to enjoy him and not be terrified and doubting of him. And so, according to Malachi, chapter 3, verse 13 and following, here's what we read. Now, I want you to track with me here. Malachi, chapter 3, verse 13 and following. Uh, God says to his people, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. By the way, have you ever spoken harshly against God? Maybe we do it in these passive-aggressive ways. I don't know. Have you ever been just hard toward him? Well, certainly that's how he's experiencing the people of Malachi's day the community of faith then, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? And verse 14, well, you have said, it is vain to serve God. 
What is the profit of our keeping his charge? Or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? That is to say with a posture of humility. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This is the attitude of God's people in that day. Clearly they're complaining, either directly and overtly or very quietly and passive aggressively and deep down. God sees it all. God says, why are you being so hard with me? We're not being hard with you. Why would you say such a thing? Has God ever convicted you of something? And your response is to say, how dare you suggest that? That's not me. I, I know I do that. Sometimes God will tap me on the shoulder. He'll, he'll impress upon my spirit uh, some faulty way of thinking. Or he'll, he'll uh, maybe uh, challenge me because of something I've said or, or a, an attitude that I have. And my posture is to be defensive. Oh, I would never do that, God. Mm-hmm, is sort of his response. Do you ever do that? Well, the people here, that they're, why would you think that? Can you, can you appreciate how much personal energy we spend hiding from God? How much personal energy we spend trying to justify ourselves? When the God of heaven and earth sees it all, he knows it all, and he loves us enough to say, child, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Why are you going that direction? And an appropriate response would be to say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. But too often our response is, my response is, oh, me? No. You've totally got me wrong. And here's why I respond that way. I'm afraid I'm going to lose. That he's going to take something. Now, in these verses, 13, 14, and 15, there's really a couple things at play here. Number one is the people are convinced that serving God is not profitable for them. That to follow after God isn't paying well enough. Are you hearing that? And then the second thing that's at stake here is the people are convinced that the wicked that are out there, they get away with whatever they want. In fact, God, we see this in verse 15, they can taunt you and you don't seem to care. They just get fatter and happier. Now, please understand here, uh, just two or three weeks ago, we talked quite a bit about this issue of, of the wicked and whether they really do get away with things or not. And so what I want to invite you to do, I want to commend to you those, those sermons from Malachi from two or three weeks ago. Go back and sit in those and just absorb God's word. What I want to do today is not give so much attention to that because we've already done that. I want to give some attention here to this issue of losing. Of believing that serving God is not very profitable for us. What does it profit us, they say? What does it profit us, they ask? 
What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking before the Lord of hosts? Now, do you ever ask that? I do. Man, there are times as a dad and as a husband, as a friend, as a pastor of all things, where I put myself forward, I pour myself in to whatever it is, thinking, God, you better be watching. And then I don't see the return like I think I deserve or would be fair or just. And so then I get into this, and trust me, I've lived in Minnesota long enough, and I can say this, I get in this Minnesota nice passive aggressiveness. Well, of course I like Jesus. But he's really letting me down. But I won't tell anybody, or I won't tell him, I'll tell everybody else. Any of you that way? It would help us to explore some language here. In verse 15, the issue of what is the prophet that, that uh, question that is asked here, uh, what is the prophet? So in the, in the, uh, in the Hebrew, uh, functionally, the word, the, the phrase will be translated this way or said this way. Are you ready for this? I mean, literally, this, this, this would totally reflect what the Hebrew is putting forward. What's my cut? You hear that? What's, what's my cut? Where's my cut? That, that's what's being asked here. The people are saying to God, what's our cut? What do we get out of this? And they're not seeing a return. They're not getting their fair cut. And so they are resentful to God and either overtly or in very hidden and subtle ways, they're complaining. And God's like, why are you so harsh with me? What's up? In short, in short, we believe serving God is vain unless we gain. In short, we believe too many of us, that serving God is vain unless we gain. What a tragedy. Now, such is what tripped up Eve. I I mentioned Adam and Eve earlier. So in uh, Genesis chapter 3, so here's what Eve's situation is. Verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3. So the enemy comes along, the serpent, the devil, Satan. He comes along and he's conning Eve into believing that God's holding, on, holding back on her. And that, uh, that that tree that you've been told you can't eat from, well, <laughs> that's a lie. You can eat from it. God, God just doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding back. So according to verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that, notice this, It was a delight to the eyes. It looked good. How could something that looked so good be so bad? It looked good. That the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And that's what she wanted. 
She wanted more than what she thought God was offering her. She wanted his wisdom, not just her own wisdom. She took of his fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And with that comes the rebellion. John Salehammer, a wonderful Bible teacher, scholar, he says, it was the illegitimate quest for forbidden wisdom that led Eve to disobeying God. Now, understand the subtlety of that. We all would want wisdom, right? We would hope. But specifically here, it was the illegitimate quest or thirst for what God had chosen to not offer the fullness of to her. In other words, God is holding back on her in her mind, and she wanted it. God had given her everything that he thought she needed. He knew she needed. It wasn't enough for her. And she's delighting in that fruit, much like some kids gathered at the base of the Christmas tree in the living room, delight at the shiny baubles that are hanging. She wants that. And she'll do anything to have it. Even though God had said, I've given you enough. Don't, don't bother with this. You don't need it. But she wanted what God was not willing to give her. And so her take on it was God's holding back and she's losing. As a matter of fact, this quest is instigated by the enemy himself. Verse 5 of Genesis chapter 3, he says to Eve, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And by the way, we can't overlook how often it is that the evil one is coming alongside of us and teasing us and tempting us and telling us a lie. God's holding back and you're going to lose and so you better fight for it. You better reach for that fruit. If, you're want, if you want to gain, you better reach. You got to do it. It's okay. You're not really going to die. Uh, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, that's not the end of the story. What we see in that story is this idea that we have to fight God for any kind of gain in our lives. Did you hear that? But that's not the way it has to be. As a matter of fact, Malachi chapter 3 verse 16 shows us something different. Look at these words. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before the Lord of those who feared the Lord and esteemed the Lord's name. Now, this is powerful right here. Because what we see in verses 13, 14, and 15 is God having to confront some people who are harsh toward him because they think he's holding back so they scramble to make their lives work so they don't be losers. 
But it's clear in verse 16, not everybody thinks that way. That there are some within the community of faith that fear the name of God above all else. And it could be that those are uh, those who God has called out and they have repented and confessed their sin and come clean before God. Or it could be that these are just simply others from the community who have never given in to the pressures to pursue prosperity and power and position no matter the cost we don't know but what we do know is this whoever they are whether repentant or having stayed the course they fear Yahweh now that word is awkward I'll tell you straight up that word fear is a hard word we tend to apply a lot of negativity to that Uh, Some years ago, I was speaking at a men's gathering, and uh, I was talking about the fear of the Lord. And after we were done, this older gentleman comes up to me and just reams me out. How dare you tell us that we need to fear God? Why would you say that? It turns out he grew up in a home with a very mean father who ruled by fear rather than grace. So when he hears the word fear, he assumes it is about terrorizing somebody, gaslighting somebody, abusing somebody as a means for control. And I explained to him, well, let me reiterate, that's not what we're talking about here. The word fear it has this idea of, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, you may recall. It has this idea of being in awe, of having astonishment toward or wonder toward, having reverence for. It's kind of like Aaron Rodgers has for Kirk Cousins. <laughs> right? Awe, astonishment, wonder, fear. And this is the calling that we have with regard to the one true God. This is the perspective, the attitude that we are to have. Now, I want you to, uh, I want you to understand this is what these folks had done. They chose to fear God, and in fact, it united them. And they came together and they spoke about this. And indeed, according to what we read here, they, they, they did what we see among Malachi's contemporaries, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, and, and the people under the leadership of those, of those leaders. They came together, these people, and they wrote up a document and they signed their name on the document and said, we will stand and fear the Most High God above all. We will be in awe of him. This was their commitment. The story goes further. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Listen. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, 
But for you who fear my name, this is one of the most famous lines in the Bible right here. For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. This is the word of God. Now, for the people of Malachi's day and even for our day that are convinced that the wicked just get away with whatever they want, what we read here in the word of God is that is not true. That the wicked, those who are evil, those who will not repent before Jesus and call on him that they would be saved, they will face certain judgment and eternal condemnation. Make no mistake about it. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist, and we've spoken quite a bit about him in recent weeks. Lord willing, we will again next weekend and the weeks that follow. John the Baptist tells of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 verse 12 these words. Listen, his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, we love it when John the Baptist calls out Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But we don't like it when John the Baptist calls out Jesus and says, Behold, the one with the winnowing hook who will throw the wicked like chaff into the unquenchable fire. And we love a Jesus who takes away the sins of the world, but we're not so sure about a Jesus who has that winnowing fork in his hand. And we can't pick and choose. We have to have the, the full Jesus and all of his grace, but also his power and his judgment. And the wicked shall be condemned. And by the way, dear one, listen to me. If you're here listening to me right now in this room, we're online, and you are not related to Jesus Christ in faith, right now is the time to call on him and ask him to be your Savior and Lord. Right now. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is God's provision for your salvation, his death on a cross, his resurrection from the dead, making it so that sin and death and the devil and condemnation no longer have the final word in your life. Call on him. Confess him as Lord and Savior. You might simply say something like this. God of heaven, here am I, a sinner, and I call on you recognizing that Jesus has bled and died and risen from the dead so that I can have my sins killed off and I can have new life forevermore. And so in faith, I trust him as Savior and Lord from this day forward. Oh, may that be your prayer today. Now, for the rest of us that fear God, for the rest of us that fear God, oh, what we read here is that his righteousness will warm our whole being, that healing will come upon us through and through, and that there will be a day when we leap forward in unfettered freedom and joy unrestrained by the travails of time and space and the woes of this world. Oh, I long for that day. I cannot wait for that day. 
what a glorious day it will be. As a matter of fact, the revelator, John, John chapter 21, of that day, he offers these words, verse 1 and following. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this inheritance and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Praise God, right? Praise God. And the Apostle Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, we read these words. They're so beautiful. They're simple. We read, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Before we worship here in a moment, I want to share with you three simple takeaways. They come from my friend, Dr. Charlie Dyer. They're not my own. I've, I've reworded them slightly, but they're his, but they're really helpful. Number one, consider writing down your own scroll of remembrance, vowing faithfulness to God and asking him for his help. Maybe it's a journal. Maybe it's a post-it note you stick on your mirror. Perhaps there's a verse or two that you would include that are especially meaningful. Maybe those I just read. Number two, Surround yourself with like-minded people like those that we see in Malachi 4 who spoke, or rather 3, verse 16, who spoke with one another. We really need one another as we move toward Jesus. Surround yourself with people that will help you on that journey and not hinder you. Number three. Remember, God's day of reckoning is coming. Anticipate it. Trust him as you wait. Let me ask you to stand. Would you stand with me? If you're able, if you're comfortable. There will be a day... When we will leap into the new tomorrows with unfettered freedom and joy like calves jumping out of the stall. 
the world and the flesh and the devil tell us that we're going to lose and that God's holding back. But friend, that is a lie from the pit of hell and smells like smoke. With God, we gain far more than our imaginations can comprehend. And you know what? Most chiefly, we have gained Jesus. Holy, holy is he.